Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm the host of the program, Mitch Michaels. We're at the Santa Monica Studios, the Tennis Channel Building, and this is a jam-packed show. A lot of great content in the world of tennis. First up, I'm going to be talking to two of our premier journalists on Tennis.com, Senior Editorial Manager Ed McGrogan and Editorial Producer David Kane. We're going to be talking about all the fall storylines talking about Novak Djokovic's return, Iaskiantek's year, Carlos Alcaraz is the top in the game, Medvedev and Tsitsipas, and everything in between on Shabor's impact and what the WTA finals will look like in Fort Worth. They're going to both be there covering it. What the field is going to look like, still a lot up for grabs. There's a lot to discuss with Ed McGrogan and David Kane. And after that, John Lloyd, the former British number one, 1977 Australian Open Grand Slam finalist, he has a lot to say. His book, Dear John, the John Lloyd Autobiography, is set to release in the States. And we had a great chat talking about his career, why he decided to write the book, some funny stories, Bjorn Borg, Andy Murray coaching the Davis Cup team, what it was like working with him, and his thoughts on the current crop of players and the current game and the current situation of British tennis men and women. So a lot to talk about with John Lloyd, Ed McGrogan, and David Kane up first. This is Tennis Channel Inside In. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels. Let's start the show. All right, now on Tennis Channel Inside In, uh, delighted to be joined in person by uh, the heavy hitters, the anchors of our editorial team. Uh, in person, I'm like kind of, you know, kind of been startled to be doing this live, but Ed McGrogan, David Kane, uh, senior editorial manager, editorial producer, uh, just great columnists and writers as well on the website. Gentlemen, thanks for joining the show. Uh, it is nice to be chatting with you face to face for a change. Long overdue, and uh, appreciate the time. It's uh, it's a good time of year to talk about tennis and anything else we want to bat around here. So welcome. Yeah, it's a new milestone for me. I've never podcasted in person before. So oh, yeah, it's quite exciting. It's different, right? Like we kind of just get back to, I guess, the face to face interviews and the interactions. But uh, you know, I, I can't speak bad about Zoom podcasts and what they've done, and just the ability to network and. Uh, like having you guys here, especially this time of year, as we reach the final stretch uh, for the end of the tennis season, I, I guess we can kind of start here because you guys have covered and followed tennis for a while. The season itself gets talked about as being maybe a marathon. There's fatigue in there. Uh, do you think that there is a need for reform? Do you like the schedule the way it is? Do you think that there could be better, better examples of a break somewhere in the schedule? I guess, Ed, I can start with you. What do you think about the calendar itself on the tennis season? We just actually ran a story on Coco Golf yesterday that I thought hit on this in a way. And I think all players, whether – I think a lot of players, maybe that's not admitted in public as much, but I personally think that they, they want that change as much as I think some fans do. I think that they're – I think this is a lengthy – it's compared to other sports, extremely lengthy – um, it's an odd sport where you you get to what I would consider, you know, its end point at the U.S. Open, but the season does go on mm-hmm. 
for a few more months after. And this is not breaking news to anybody who's listening to your show here, but I, I sense that from players as well. And I think this season in particular is, is a peculiar one where we had so many milestone moments just happen in September yeah. um, with the big retirements, with Ego winning her second slam, Carlos Alcaraz coming out, of course. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm curious to see how this month plays out. Does it kind of peter out? We have a new uh, location for the WTA finals. There's still a lot of upheaval. There's still a lot of settling from where the sport, you know, getting out of its COVID time. So I think this is going to be an interesting month and in how this season ends. And, you know, we're going to go into like a new year fresh and we'll see. Yeah. You said something interesting. And I just wanted to, to kind of go off on that is that if the players want it, then I think that's when the change could and, and some things could be maybe reorganized or reshuffled. I don't know that whatever the fans or outsiders think matters necessarily as much as if it's player-driven. But It could be, yeah. and, but again, the players are making just as much money on yeah. this as, as the as the tours themselves. Uh, it's more opportunities for them to make money, of course. Uh, so I think it's – I don't think it's going – this has been baked into tennis for generations yeah. now. Uh, mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens, but I don't expect big change either. And, and David, you do have these players that – kind of, I would say, want or need to get the reps in that are coming off of injuries, their rankings are down, they're feeling fresh, and they want to maybe, I guess, look ahead to next year, but build that good, those good habits and that good form to really hit the ground running in 2023. No, definitely. I think we underestimate how much the players enjoy the opportunity to be out there yeah. making money. I mean, especially when you think about these players as independent contractors, we're coming off of a, you know, year and a half month stretch. We're coming off of an 18-month stretch where, they weren't having those guaranteed opportunities. We've seen prize money decrease. Yeah. Now that things are slowly getting back to normal, I think we want to see players on court as much as possible. When it comes to the calendar, I don't know if I have as much of a problem with the length as much as I have an issue with the conditions. I think traditionally we used to see the season end on carpet, quicker courts, yeah. and we're seeing sort of the homogenation of surfaces reach sort of its logical extreme in the sense that we're kind of ending, having our season ending championships, for example, for years in Singapore and in Zhuhai on courts that many likened to mud. I think when we <laughs> yeah. talk about marathon versus sprint, we want the last six to eight weeks to kind of feel like a sprint before right. the off season. And you know what, to feel like something new, like what you just said, because a lot of this, we have seen some of this surface play over the past nine months of the year. And you're right, that indoor European stretch, Asian stretch that we've traditionally had for the past decade, you know, long time like that, uh, that is something that we're kind of, you know, it's not as distinct that this mm -hmm. slice of the season in some cases. So I, I guess that makes those events maybe a little more um, important if we, if you know, we'll say yeah. that, but... I would like to see carpet. That would be fun again to just bring back some events that, like you said, David, are different. And I think the one thing I would look at, too, is what Iga brought up, the scheduling, having to kind of travel back and forth, you know, nonstop. I mean, it doesn't – I know we're kind of figuring it out because of the pandemic and events were canceled. But going all over the globe at this point of the year is kind of where the travel, I think, would get to be the fatigue factor. We're seeing Iga st starting to slowly find her voice and really mm -hmm. trying to affect change now as the world number one as much as she is – against sort of these travel um, requirements that are being asked of these players. I mean, we have a full American squad of the Billie Jean King Cup of Coco Goff, of Jesse Pagula, who are in all likelihood going to qualify for the WTA Finals in Fort Worth, who also do plan to play yeah. the finals. And so it's, it is sort of to each their own, but how much Iga is going to be able to continue to affect this sort of major change will be interesting to see for sure. You see like Novak Djokovic playing, getting his form, haven't had the, hasn't had the chance to as much this year. You also see someone like Dominic Thiem, who's in that long road back from injury, 
this is a huge time period for him to play. So I don't know what the what the solution is. I know it's a valid criticism, critique. I also know we all love tennis, and we're not going <laughs> to not care about the events. Can we go back on. to Iga for a moment yeah. about just – I think this is a good time to look at her year in general. I was thinking about mm-hmm. this after the Open. I think her year actually could go down as one of the great two slam seasons um, kind of in general. Because mm. we, we often look at the greatest seasons, um, you know, we've – Obviously, we have a couple extremely rare Grand Slam examples. We have the three Slam winners. I'm talking about men's and women's tennis, but I, I think I think we are almost underselling how good Iga's year has been overall. Yeah. Um, I think part of that is we're again there are some huge tennis stories that have dominated discussion. We have a new leading man in Alcaraz who has created a lot of buzz, tennis fans and otherwise. I think I'd love to give Iga her due because especially coming off of the of the shock Barty retirement, she picks up the baton, she runs with it, and has looked exceedingly comfortable in this role. And I think she in spite of what she has said about, you know, the schedule and all that, I think she will she will finish it. She will yeah. take this part of the season just as significantly as she's she began it. That baton didn't even hit the ground. Like, it literally, when Barty pulled herself out of the rankings, Ego would have been number one anyway by winning Miami, essentially. So, um, I'm, I'm impressed, too. I mean, it's it's the two slams. It's that hard court run. It, it's incredible. And I would agree. I mean, if you I'd have to look at all the, the record books and the history, but Ego's year is truly remarkable. It, it helps aesthetically, too. Ego's like a new kind of player, the way that she hits the ball, the way that she approaches the game. And I think as much as she projects sort of that – anxiety and insecurity not dissimilar to what we saw from a Naomi Osaka I think we've mm-hmm. saw, we've seen Iga maybe due in part to the strength of the team around her has come into her own and as much as she was audibly anxious about how the U.S. Open was going to pan out for her she was able to set those aside and play really efficient tennis over seven matches sort of in many ways embarrassing on Jabor mm-hmm. in the finals so I think it, it's yeah. true I think as we approach the uh, 20 year anniversary of Justine Enna winning her to her first two slams it is sort of a similar uh, change, changing of the guard in that respect. I mean, she definitely has personality and, and loves to play the game and has flair, but I get I get struck by her, I guess, professional approach. She gets mm-hmm. out there, treats every match like it's like it's a job, like there's a task at hand. You don't necessarily see a lot of dips with her that you might see with men, women across the board. She plays, I think, the modern game, you know, as well as anybody right now. She She feels like she has just she's entered kind of a level of comfort where you you need something from her opponent that is going to be of a great level to compete with her and and you know we're talking about her on clay and hard that that accounts for you know a good 85 percent of the season um you know i know she wants to do well at wimbledon not, you know but there there she's going to have opportunities Depending on, and she's still so young. So yeah. we have, we have uh-huh. I think, someone that we need to watch out for just as much right. as we're talking about other players. That uh, The Wimbledon, the grass court thing, I keep going back to something Tracy Austin told me where she just said it's it comes together fast. Like, you might you don't have the reps, it's a short season. One year, Iga could put it all together and go from, you know, where she's been to just winning the championship. So I would not put that past her as well. And the fact that we're saying this is one of the best two slam seasons ever, and I don't think we've even really approached what her peak could be is pretty scary. No, absolutely. I mean, we go back to, you know, it all coming together. That's what happened to Simone Allop two years ago. I mean, she had spent mm-hmm. a decade sort of fighting the grass, accepting it, and then beating Serena Williams, which she did in the final. And certainly Iga, as a former junior Wimbledon champion, I don't put it past her to, to complete the career slam in, uh, in that respect as well. Do you guys look at the pecking order of the women's game? Obviously, Iga's at the perch at the top. Will someone, maybe Coco Goff, Anjibor, having the second-best season across the board, 
Is there somebody that you guys look at as kind of maybe assuming the Mandel as the number two player or a couple players that you think will be there for a while challenging Ega? I think that's part of the problem is that as, as much as we can loud Ega for having the season that she had, it is quite a steep drop off after Ega, even as impressive as Jabor has been. There's a pretty big gap between her and Ons and then an even bigger gap perhaps between Ons and the rest of the field. With that said, it has been really encouraging to see what Barbara Krechkova has been mm. able to do the last couple of weeks, taking advantage of this post-U.S. Open swing. Have, after having won the U.S. Open women's doubles title with Katarina Sinyachkova, I feel like she's really coming into her own as perhaps that number two player has that sort of complete game and was able to take it to Iga in a final, being the first player to beat her in a championship match since she first started making finals in 2019. Yeah, when she won a set, it was like, this is crazy because no one does that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Barbara because her match then – I guess she wins back-to-back titles. She, there wasn't really a lot of momentum coming in. I know there was the injury factor. There was a lot of different things. Her style of play maybe being different, maybe the doubles, maybe that's where you can develop like her game and some of the momentum there. But she's a fascinating player. I don't know if it's sustainable number two in the world, Ed, but she's somebody that could be kind of like counter to what a lot of these top players are trying to do. I mean, she came out of, you know, we talk about kind of coming out of nowhere. That was we saw last year at, at Paris with her, but I, you know, <clears throat> when you can hit the ball that flat and that, and that, you know, effectively, again, we're talking about another all surface player, I feel like as well. So, you know, if, if it, she was a fine foil to what we saw against Diga, um, not too long ago there. So again, what, let's see kind of how, I think some players love to use those season ending championships as really, they are, they're, they're they tell a lot. They can tell a lot of the coming year. Mm-hmm. So I want to see kind of who grabs that. I know you just mentioned Coco. I mentioned her earlier, too. Um, you know, we talked about some players with her, Jabor. The Grand Slam finals this year have not been, a, a, you know, exceedingly dramatic contest. So I, I, th- I think what we want to see, how much Coco can kind of give the rest of the way. And, uh, you know, we'll see kind of how she sets up for 23, because I think the expectations for her will kind of be raised yeah. to – with her profile continuing to ascend. The the void is there for her to, to run through. And just to get back to Krachikova, she showed me in that French Open run, obviously there was a lot of upsets, but it was the Sakari semifinal match where she overcame one of the worst like line, line calls over rules on match point down where she basically got screwed and still dug in and won the match where a lot of players might have just kind of unraveled there when they were, uh, you know, Beaten down a little bit there, but I'm I'm a fan obviously of her. I think Coco, David. I, I just I'm a huge fan obviously, but I think can she win when her A game's not there? The forehand at times can break down. I think if she can grind out wins and she just keeps progressing, she'll get to the top of the mountain. Obviously, number one in Iga is, is pretty tough. Now the forehand for Coco is a problem, and it's such a it's such a shame because everything else is there in mm-hmm. spades. I mean, she is just probably one of the best competitive minds out there right now in the field, other than Shvantec. And it is getting her deep in these tournaments, despite being fairly technically flawed. I think the sooner that she fixes that forehand, the more, the quicker the gate, the floodgates will just open for her because she continues to put herself in these positions in spite of that. And the more opportunities you give yourself in a field like this, the more likely you are to eventually win one of them. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. 
Ed McGrogan and David Kane here on Tennis Channel Inside In as we continue to talk the top storylines here in October as we make our push for the final end-of-the-year events on the ATP and WTA. I'll pose this question to you guys, talking about all the storylines in tennis, men and women. Ed, where would you put what Anjabor has done, kind of what she's done to grow the game, the on-court results? This 2022 year was an amazing breakthrough for a player that is a true pioneer in a word that's constantly overused, in my opinion. She's done a lot on and off the court. Where would you put her year in, in the scheme of the grand storylines? It's so It's been so nice to see because generally when you talk about players who can't make that last step, there's, a, there's this reflexive negative talk about them, cloud about them, unable to push through. Now, Jibur obviously wants to do that, um, but I think that what – What's been so encouraging is, you know, we talk about the mental side of tennis here, and she remains such a positive personality for the game. Um, you know, when we when we want players to engage also, fantastic on social media, like a, a great representative for the sport. Yeah. And you, you, I think what we saw at the U.S. Open final, you saw how much the crowd was also just behind her, even, you know, even down. Um, she is definitely growing that game. I I think we talk about growing the game, obviously, Tunisia, where she's from, but she's making fans, you know, in the U.S., in big markets already. So it's not as if she's just growing the game, um, which is so important beyond the borders that it goes, but she's developing a, a really strong fan base that where it already yeah. exists, and that's important too. She's just really likable, and you see it from her peers on the tour. You see it from the fans worldwide, and the stat I saw was the Tunisian – Tennis Federation said they've gone from like 6,000 players, like 20,000 in the last couple of years, David. I think it's great to see someone that also plays an exciting style. There was a pro tournament in, in Tunisia as a direct result from her. It's uh, it's something that, again, I hope doesn't get overlooked. Yeah, definitely. We're seeing the result of these players from less tennis-heavy countries bear out on the tour, whether it's uh, On Shabor's impact on the tournament in Tunisia or Annette Kantavite, or to a lesser extent, uh, Kaya Kanepi's um, impact on the tournament in Estonia. I mean, Onjibor has long been a player who makes history every time she takes the court. Now she's obviously doing that to even greater extremes in the last year. And, and to Ed's point, she's a fan favorite, period, with that sort of global backing. In many ways, is sort of the extroverted heir to what Agnieszka Radvanski is to bring to the women's tour. Has that sort of stylistic flair, but is also able to bring a level of aggression that mm. Aga was not always able to bring in these big matches. I think the, the next step for Ons is where does she take her game from here? Does she embrace more traditional patterns or does she embrace even more variety? Because I think what we're seeing in these Grand Slam finals is improvisation doesn't work. You need to have reliable patterns when you are nervous, when you're feeling the pressure of these big matches. And that is what is getting players like Iga and even to a lesser yeah. extent, and Elena Rabakina over the finish line of these big matches. Yeah, she ran into some big hitters. I mean, that's... No, it's a, it's yeah. a great point about that because, I, you know, the one shot that everybody's going to associate with her is, is the dropper. And we ta I, I spoke with Tracy Austin about this too, uh, or this year for a story. And, you know, what Tracy ended up saying at the end of the day was she loves to, you know, she loves to hit drop shots because... She loves to have fun with that. She loves to hit it kind of anywhere. She likes to experiment with all that. You contrast that with like a Carlos Alcaraz we were talking about. He is, I think he has much more of a templated setup for where the dropper mm -hmm. goes from there. But, you know, for Anz, I, that's, but that's part of her style. That is why we have such an, a connection to her. Um, and I think, you know, to, to the earlier point we made about there is a bit of a muddle after Iga, you know, at the clear number one just as clearly as that Jabur has continued to put herself in, in positions like this. And I think for the most part, with rare exceptions, 
that will pay off yeah. over time. And she's still, rel- you know, relatively speaking, she still has plenty of years to <laughs> yeah. evolve at this. Most match wins last year on tour, up there again, you know, towards the top this year. We'll see. The, the last thing on the women's uh, side of the game that I want to get to is the finals race. Pretty unprecedented that we're still figuring it out. Miami Open. I think all of seeds two through seven are not in, in the top eight right now. Uh, and right now it looks like, as you said, David, we got Iga in. Ans Pagula, Coco look like they're there. Uh, some other names floating around. How do you see this, in your opinion right now, kind of shaking out? Who do you think is going to be pushing their way towards Fort Worth in the finals? I think I would like to phone a friend on this one. It really does feel like it's <laughs> yeah. quite up in the air. I mean, even when Krejcikova beat Sviantec to win Ostrava, it feels not out of the realm of possibility completely that she could make a run to qualify for the top yeah. eight. She's number 20 now. If she's to have a deep run in Guadalajara and those ahead of her do not mm. step up, <laughs> she could be easily be there. I mean, we're in a situation where Simona Halep is likely not going to play. Will that open the door for Veronica Kudermatova? Could we see mm. two Russians in the top eight? I mean, it is going to be a very different uh, top eight from what we got last year for, for better and maybe even for worse. You got Sabalenka hovering around there and yeah, Kazakina had an unbelievable year for her standards coming up and, and has always been, it seems like always good in my memory of against top players. She notches some pretty big top 10 wins. This will be a very significant season ender for, you know, a couple, another reason is that, um, you know, Rabakina may not qualify here. You may see Halep out of it. Barty, we talked about, she feels like old news. But I, yeah. I say this all to say that you're going to have a field that's going to have one, probably one Grand Slam champion in it, and this is going to be one of the most significant tournaments for the rest yeah. of the field, period. So I, in that respect, you're going to see a, I think, a very, this is the height for a lot of these players here. Um, so, look, I, I, I think it's, a, it's you know, and, to have it in the U.S. with a couple of U.S. representatives, I think that's going to add a little bit of punch to this event, too. Locally, David and I, I'll say this, we're actually going to be down in Fort Worth covering yes. this, so please pay there attention to that. Um, so, look, I, I think it's a it's a fine way to end a year where we have a dominant, clear-cut number one, and you know, let's see what kind of happens from here. Excited to see the developments there, the women's game in very good hands, some new exciting faces uh, emerging uh, as we transition to the men's game. Uh, back-to-back titles for Novak Djokovic, Astana after Tel Aviv, the 90th of his career. Uh, back in the mix, playing good tennis. And Astana, uh, something that I'm starting to see, David, is these 500 fields are kind of getting loaded at the end of the year. Uh, he beats Medvedev in three where Medvedev retires, beats Tsitsipas in the final. Uh, point blank, he just seems like he's playing good, clean tennis again. Doesn't appear to be a lot of rust. Yeah, definitely. I mean, talk about making up for lost time. I mean, he hasn't been on court much in 2022, but when he has been able to play and when he's allowed himself to play, he's played some really phenomenal tennis. And obviously, I think the difference here is that he's coming back on in conditions that really favor him. Whereas mm. in the early, at the beginning of the season, he was coming back a little bit in Dubai, but mostly on clay. And that's obviously going to expose some of his weaknesses. And so the fact that he's been able to kind of ease back into this part of the season as quickly as he has, I mean, you also give a little bit of side eye to the rest of the field, the fact who have been playing for the last yeah. you know, eight, nine months consistently and haven't been able to step up, but also at the same time, Novak's fresh, and it's, we're seeing that on court right what now. What I was wondering about Novak, just because of the, the, you know, the vaccination reasons that he was not able to play so much here, was I was wondering, is he just going to play as much as, like, continue to just play as much as possible this month and somehow end up, you know, being number, you know, points-wise, end up as number two or whatever in the world based on just <laughs> an incredibly, you know, dense fall stretch of schedule. Yeah. I know he'll play Bercy and um, in Turin for the finals, but, uh, you know, you would think maybe he goes into Vienna or Basel, <laughs> one of those there. 
I was even just batting around on Twitter, like, could he even fit something else in the middle there? Nothing would kind of put it, I think, well, this year is proven. Yeah. You can't put it sort of anything past Novak at this point. So I'm curious to see just how far he wants to push it for this year. Well, how how interesting, too, is it that this could have an effect long-term on the title chase race because he's got 90 now. We didn't think that he would. I mean, I remember when he lost to uh, Batista Gute at Miami in the 1,000 a couple of years ago where he was like, you know, no disrespect, but I'm just chasing Grand Slams now. And now he's playing 250s and 500, 90 titles. Federer's at 103, then Con- Connor's 110, something like that. 109, I think. 109, yeah. 110. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that's certainly impl- – I mean – He's two behind Rafa. Rafa is 92, so we're yeah. we're in the mix And now. I mean, it, look, uh, all of these, you know, any – I made this comparison, you know, I think a great thing about seeing other sports side tennis is everybody sees, you know, like what Tom Brady's doing at 45 – Everybody reflexively thinks that that means, all right, everybody can stay, everybody yeah. can stick around until 38, so 39. That doesn't work that way. That he is clearly an exception, but even getting that far is an exception too. I think with the, with the benefit of hindsight, you look how fast Federer with the injuries did kind of, you know, it, it, it ended before you realized it. So I think one thing to think about Novak and Rafa is, you know, we've talked about this for a while. You don't know when this is really going to mm-hmm. kind of peter out. So I'm, I think the drama really with a lot of this for Novak as we move into the next year is just I'm kind of curious as to how this all plays out. He's going to have – he's going to go on as one of the most unconventional careers for an all-time great in any sport because of so many circumstances. It's competition, vaccination, et cetera. So I, I think where Novak ends up going – you feel like everything you've seen, everything with him already, but it's yeah. it comes with a new twist with all this. How in 2011 he or end of 2010, early 2011, he just deviated from the path of good to great to borderline Hall of yep. Fame career trajectory Second to fiddle, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. literally the best decade we maybe ever seen in tennis from 2011 to you know 2020. Yep. No, I mean with Novak, <laughs> I remember that year so well. It, it was it was after you know. It, there was no doubt that it was only Roger and only Rafa, and nobody was 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 butting in on that. And that 2011, I think, changed so much in tennis and the way we're going to reflect on this entire mm-hmm. era in tennis. Uh, so we'll see. I also didn't know David about the. I mean, I'm be honest the uh, the Grand Slam rule in terms of like the Wimbledon points not counting. It was a little confusing. I guess my defense would be when do they when do points in a Grand Slam never count? So you'd think that they would be in the top ten race, but. The way it looks with Novak into the top 20, clinching uh, that for the year end and clinching a spot in the finals, he could get to the top eight anyway, depending on what happens. Yeah, I think that's probably for the best, that it's sort of <laughs> rendering this conversation moot, because it did seem strange to me that for all of the um, penalties that the ATP and WTA Tour placed <laughs> on Wimbledon as a result of Russians and Belarusians not being allowed to compete, that the Grand Slam rule would still be a factor because he won Wimbledon. So all ends up not <laughs> mattering because in all likelihood it'll probably be top eight, top six, top five, as you said, even maybe even top two by the end of this this season. It's interesting to contrast sort of the two strategies playing out right now between Djokovic and Nadal because we're seeing Nadal really try to conserve his body and now we're seeing Djokovic really try to go haymaker yeah. at the end of the season. Of course, at the same time, Nadal is certain to play Australia in many respects. We don't know if that's going to be the case for Djokovic. So we're really seeing two, two ends of the spectrum play out at the same time, which also just continues this sort of golden era discussion that we love to have.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, more to talk about here with David Kane and Ed McGrogan here on Tennis Channel Inside and Novak Djokovic uh, winning the title in Astana, a, a guy in that event that's had a rough year, another bad break for Daniil Medvedev with the what he says is an abductor injury. I saw the replay of the tiebreaker point. It didn't look great. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, a, another lack of an opportunity for him to gain some momentum. It seems like, and there's a lot of extenuating circumstances, but it seems like he just never really found his footing this year it was the most bizarre end to a match I can remember in a, in a, in a while that um semi-final I believe mm-hmm. and um no he just it, it, the second set ended and, and and I think it was 5-5 in that tie break at one point so obviously we're we're just you know a couple feet away from a Medvedev <laughs> moving on and and just flat out of nowhere matches over Djokovic moves on I mean what for Medvedev what's gonna you know what'll be interesting and I guess we go back to all the way to the Australian Open final. Just that, I think, is like emblematic of where it's gone from Medvedev this year. What'll be interesting, you know, from a rankings perspective moving on, we just we mentioned Wimbledon and the extenuating circumstances. There's going to be so much that ends up shaking out as we move into next year about, you know, where the ranking points like post-COVID, post, we'll see what happens with ranking at Wimbledon, finally kind of settles where it should be. But I think Medvedev as a whole has proven, you know, over the past two, three years to be a very worthy, um, you know, top, top echelon player. I don't think anybody doubts that. Any Nobody should at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the motivation should be pretty high considering just how this is all shaken out over this year for him. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. And then I, I think we, what we want to see with Medvedev is we've seen a lot of matches with him and the established players, um, you know, we're gonna see. We're gonna see. Probably seeing a lot more Medvedev versus Alcaraz matches. We're gonna see Medvedev rude match. Like I, I think we're gonna get to see a lot more challenges to him. Yeah. That uh, we haven't, you know, too much recently, and he just gets to face like another generation of players coming up. Yeah. Two quick stints. At number one, a uh, lot to be motivated about. Uh, a guy that he's had the best of, but did beat him recently was Sitsipas, who makes the final. David loses to Djokovic. Um, not the best match for him, but at least kind of getting back on track. I've got the sense that I'm sure you guys have that a lot of his, his struggles might be between the ears. Sitsipas, his form, how do you think he is going into, you know, a year where he's obviously looking for more consistency than he's found? Yeah, I mean, look, to look at both <laughs> Medvedev's and Sitsipas's results, it's strange because it feels like they've, by the points, have achieved much, but then in, on, in the ways that seemingly count, don't have much to show for it. I mean, it's to, to look at what Sitsipas has accomplished this year and to see where he was in the race, I was thinking... How? <laughs> what has he done? But you remember, obviously, the Masters in Monte Carlo, what he was able to do in Cincinnati. So he's, it's the majors that are really a big hole in his resume. And then going back to Medvedev, just the way that he ended last year, it's going into this year, you really felt that this was going to be that changing of the guard. Even at the end of the last year's um, ATP finals, it was Novak in his 30s playing against a bunch of guys in their mid-20s. It really is that, you know, the the, the middle has really fallen out right. of the, the tennis generations on the mid side. So I, it is true. I think there is something to be said about Tsitsipas mentality and it's the same thing for for uh, Medvedev I think it's just been sort of a negative energy throughout 2022 and I don't think that energy wins slams I think conversely 
Nadal and Djokovic have been yeah. very positive when they've been on court. And I think that has bred a tremendous amount of success. Do you think that there will be, or should be, I guess is a better way to put it, some more motivation for these guys because a younger player, maybe not even in that same quote-unquote generation, took the steps that we were kind of waiting on them to take. And Alcaraz getting number one and getting, you know, the, the championship. What I worry about is that Alcaraz is so superhuman and in many <laughs> ways so perfect when he's at his best that I hope that that, the way that Casper Ruud was able to push Alcaraz for the first three sets of that final, I hope it does give the rest of the field mm -hmm. hope that he is not mm -hmm. unbeatable because I think what we don't want to create on the men's <laughs> side is another big four guy after we've already had, it's been a, a phenomenal and such an interesting two decades of men's tennis, but I think we, some of us at least, are hoping no, for something I a little agree. bit different and to have <laughs> just a very seamless changing of the guard. I'm sure the ATP would love that, but I don't know if to have that sort of repeat for another 10, 20, 25 mm -hmm. years. Alcaraz doesn't seem like he's going anywhere physically or mentally, so that that's also a question as well. I mean, just the quick point about Sitsipas before, I, I, I do think there's a word that this, that this compounds over time. You know, one, it's, it's trying to finally get over that hump that just builds and builds when you just can't uh, you just can't close really at this point. Um, so we'll see. And I think to the the Alcaraz point, I think he's earned kind of all the accolades that, that he's gotten to this point. I think I, I, again, someone who is people who never talk to me about tennis definitely tune in for Carlos Alcaraz. So as it goes to like anointing him as the successor, yes, that we we do need to tap breaks on that type of stuff. Um, Certainly, he's earned it, though. I, just thinking about where the men's game is right now, though, back to you, I think the biggest – one of the things we haven't talked about in this uh, late stretch of the year is just Tiafo and Fritz and well, how, yeah. this is, how this has turned. Um, you know, I, I think that when we look back at 2022 here, I, I'm not sure how many would have put that as one of the biggest takeaways of this year is you've got – You've got like firm top 15, top 10 player right now in, in, in each of them. And, you know, let's, it was, it's a, it was a U.S. Open to obviously forget for Fritz, but wow, for Tiafa was just so impressive. And these two, I, I do think, um, set themselves up pretty nicely for, uh, for the end of this year, for 23. Um, I know the very trite thing is to talk about American tennis, like it's the most tired argument there is, but... <laughs> There is really something that these two have impressed me with uh, on big stages too. Some obviously some events notwithstanding, right. but they've definitely raised the ceiling for this current crop of American tennis players. As, as we've pointed out, there is a lot of depth to the game, a lot of top 100 players. Fritz getting to eight, even with that U.S. Open uh, that didn't go his way at all, and then Tiafo putting together the consistency has been really, really remarkable. The last point on Alcaraz that I just wanted to throw your ways, uh, guys, is. Will there be any difference? you see any difference in the short term with him kind of being the hunted now? This was an unbelievable year, a remarkable one. He's got the right attitude and the right team around him. But will there be any added pressure, any added you know difficulties that now he is at the top and there's no more secret? Everyone knows who Carlos Alcaraz I mean, is. It, I mean, certainly, there, certainly there's added pressures, added expectations. I just think when you look back, not only just at the U.S. Open, but – you look back at the wins he got on clay um, back earlier this year over over Rafa, over Djokovic. Then, by the way, he goes out and just destroys Zverev in, in the final after both of those. I know that's a 1,000. We're not comparing it to slams, but the burden of proof he has put on big <laughs> stages against all types of players, you have, you, you have the team in his corner, and you could just, I mean, I, I think part of, what part of what I enjoy about Alcaraz is that 
tennis fans and tennis lifers can can just enjoy and dissect his game to minute levels and, yeah. and see like wow this is why this player is so good I also think casual fans can understand that like they just can grasp that Alcaraz has it from like a sort of mental state that just he is I think that connects with kind of fans I think it connects with just to show that Alcarez has has developed into a player that I don't see this downturn um, in spite of obviously very raised expectations. He'll come into 23 with immense sort of pomp and circumstance, but I just am looking forward to where it goes from here with him too. I agree completely. I think that there's going to be tests. Yannick Sinner is somebody that we saw the classic match there. He's going to be in the mix. The players we mentioned, uh, he handles it the right way. And, uh, David, I think he's got that extra quality, too. He could potentially be a crossover-level star. We we're starting to see it. He was very popular in New York City, even when playing an American. And I think Alcaraz, along with some others, obviously, Tiafo's in that mix, but they are attracting the non-traditional tennis fans that are just excited about what they're watching. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we talk about Alcaraz. I mean, just sort of the, the sheer athleticism, even to compare – the way that an Anjibor is able to improvise on the court, I think uh, Alcaraz is what I could I would describe as sort of an informed uh, improvisation because he's able to put himself pretty much anywhere on the court. He can hit basically any shot on the court, and we've so we saw so many miraculous. I mean, the the highlight reels of what Alcaraz has been able to put together over the course of 2022 would be phenomenal. I highly recommend anyone on the video team who's listening to this put that <laughs> together for us. But I think. Um, yeah, it's it's strange because the expectations are so sky high for Alcaraz that a quarterfinal defeat, you know, at Rolling Garros felt like a massive disappointment. A loss to Center Wimbledon felt like a massive disappointment, but he's been able to shake off, you know, these perceived short-term yeah. losses for long-term gains and put together a really physical, emotional, mental U.S. Open and come out with the title. Yeah. So I think the sky is very much the limit for him, mm-hmm. and whether he continues to, you know break that ceiling or stay just below it, you know, it, it remains to be seen. I mean, it is crazy, the sky-high stuff. Like, if he won eight Grand Slams, people would say, oh, that's disappointing. That's, you know, more than Macaro. <laughs> that's, like, Agassi mm-hmm. level, and that's that's where we are right now, and deservedly so based on what we've seen with what the potential could be. So Yeah, it was, you know, I, I do think back to that Roland Garros pre-stretch where he was, you know, uh, a cons- you know I, I would dare say a consensus co-favorite in many people's eyes, and to to – to deal with that and to come back and kind of, you know, slightly under the radar after that sort of petered out and to kind of just reassert himself mm. in the in the summer hard court stretch, um, just all kudos to him. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Ed McGrogan, David Kane, uh, before I let you go, what, what should we uh, be on the lookout for at tennis.com? Well, there, like I said, WTA finals is a big focus. Uh, we'll both be in Fort Worth uh, for stretches of that. Um, and just a lot more coming up as, as we kind of end the, you know, end this season. Um, I do think there's a lot to, to still reflect on, even though, you know, Serena, Roger, a lot more on that to come. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think looking ahead to the WDA finals, in the meantime, I've got some exciting interviews with some American players that I've been able to catch up with, really speak on the depth of that, of that field as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really exciting end of the season. We've seen, you know, a, a grand finale, but there's a, a, a really exciting epilogue over the next couple of weeks. It's going to be fun. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining. I know Ed's got to get going because it's a couple hours. It's the Rangers season opener. So a couple <laughs> days of Bill's Chiefs. Big week <laughs> yeah, for me. That's true. It's a big week. Got to get him back to New York safe and sound. Uh, Ed, David, thanks for joining. Thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. 
Huge thanks to Ed McGrogan and David Kane. Good to be podcasting with them in person. Make sure you check out all their stuff on tennis.com and follow them during the WTA Finals in Fort Worth in a couple weeks. They'll be on the ground with a lot to report and a lot to cover on the final tournament of the 2022 season for the ladies. And now it's John Lloyd here on Tennis Channel Inside In. I had the privilege of chatting with him for an in-person podcast. Lloyd made the finals of the 1977 Australian Open. He's a commentator currently, a very esteemed one at that for the BBC. He talks about what advice he would give to players that want to get into commentary. And we talk about the release of his autobiography, Dear John. A lot of great stories in there from his time on tour, his time in the game as a commentator and as a coach. Here's my chat with John Lloyd now on Tennis Channel Insider. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. My name is Mitch Michaels, the host of this show as always from the Santa Monica Studios and uh, delighted to have our guest this week, a uh, very respected member of the tennis community playing for over 15 years, made a Grand Slam final, has coached, has been a broadcaster for the BBC covering Wimbledon and uh, is coming out with a book in the States now. It's already released in England called Dear John, the John Lloyd Autobiography. Uh, I've always wanted to talk to this guy, John Lloyd. Welcome <laughs> to the show. Thanks, Mitch. Nice to be here. I uh, I really do want to get into you know your book and your journey and the timing of everything. But I guess we can kind of start with this. How has it been going? You know, you're on the BBC covering Wimbledon. It was mm. a banger, and it was good to have the full crowd, full fans back. And I know you're perched in the broadcast booth. You've seen it all. But how was this year's Wimbledon for you? Oh, it, well, it was it was back to you know the good old days again after the during the COVID. It was uh, obviously the one year it got cancelled totally, and then the year before last, it was. I mean, we got through it all right, but it was it wasn't very good. You were in a bubble. You had to you know all the commentators had to stay in one area, mm. couldn't mix in with anybody. You had to get tested here every day and and all that sort of stuff. And the atmosphere with the f- it just wasn't the same, you know. But yeah. this year, everybody was so relaxed and mm. the, the crowds were huge. The tennis was fantastic, yeah. and it, it just got back to the days that we wanted to. And it's, it was so glad to sort of put that put that away from us. That that those terrible couple of years you had those roars back which was oh. great and that's what we all missed oh. uh that and i will say you know great tournament the Djokovic kiros final was great uh, that ceremony was awesome with the past champions that's just I, and i feel like more tennis tournaments more majors should do this but i don't know that anyone could quite do it like wimbledon i know everyone can't be there but that was about as good as it gets for honoring <laughs> legends well i have to say that one thing about england or great britain is that we do do ceremonies well <laughs> Uh, I think we've probably seen that with uh, the the passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth, mm-hmm. uh, and just seeing you know how we, how well we do all those things, and and with the champions uh, having them come on this on the centre court like that, and the way they, uh, I thought Sue Barker who did the mm-hmm. presentation, who actually was her last Wimbledon, but mm-hmm. she did a, a masterful job I thought, and and obviously having Johnny Mack there, there was a complete difference between having Sue Barker and then Johnny Mack and. You know, Johnny Mash went. Johnny Mac went off script a number of times and introduced people he wasn't supposed to, and said things he wasn't yeah. supposed to. But that's Johnny Mac. Uh, and I thought that having all the great champions, I wish we'd had a few more. Actually, it would yeah. have been e- even more special. But that was a great, great day. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, you know, Martina wasn't able to be there oh. with the COVID stuff, and it was unfortunate there. Johnny Mac's funny because. You know, you saw the whole run, right, from him as a teenager oh. to his views on England, England's views on him. Yeah. And now he's like the uh, favorite adopted son. I, you know what? It's one of those things where I, I, I feel like saying that to Novak Djokovic and just say mm-hmm. to him, Novak, don't worry. 
Give it time. It, it will yeah. come. It yeah. will come. At the moment, he's uh, he was unfortunate in some ways to be, uh, you know, sort of a rival with the two <laughs> most popular players maybe in history with yeah. Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Mm-hmm. And Novak, obviously, with all the vaccination stuff, but uh, has, hasn't really helped his cause. But uh, it's difficult for him to be sort of feel like he's loved. And in a lot of places, he's not. But it will happen when he comes back, particularly yeah. after he stops. You know, people will realise how great a player yeah. he is at the moment and, and what when he comes back and and I think people will love him when uh, when you were coming up in British tennis to kind of transition to you and again we know how popular the sport is historically and the great mm. champions but you were at a time when I think men's tennis was a little down they were looking for that guy for so many years mm. did you feel that pressure of maybe not just on you specifically but guys playing tennis boys playing tennis at a high level was there pressure to succeed and find the next superstar you're absolutely right, and that's something actually I write about in my book. That um, I one of my great regrets on my career um, is that I didn't handle that pressure well at all, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why one of the reasons why I have such admiration for like Tim Henman, Andy Murray, obviously, who embraced playing in in Britain in front of the crowd. I, I mean, I won a couple of mixed doubles there, but but I had a partner with me. But playing singles. I, I didn't like it. I got uh, tight and never played at my full potential. I played much better at the US Open and at the Australian Open mm-hmm. where I was just another player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one, it's one of those things, I look back at it now and if I had the knowledge that I have now, mm-hmm. I would have embraced the situation and I didn't. And uh, as I say, it's one of the regrets I have. It, it's wonderful if you do embrace it because the mm-hmm. crowd is fanatical and, yeah. they, and, you know, if, if they, and they're desperate for you to win. Yeah. But in some ways it made me desperate to desperate to win and I didn't play very well there you know you've transitioned to media now do you think at the time you were treated fairly do you think there was too much pressure I know the fans have been you know they're on you they want you Mm. to win so bad but do you think the media at the time was fair to you when you were coming up well, you have a different perspective. At the time, I thought, uh, particularly, uh, you know, with my private life and stuff, um, I thought that they were a, a little bit unkind at times. But but I look back at it now and realise that, hey, you know, this is a business. Uh, and if you play badly on the court and you, and you don't look like you're in great shape or you're not playing well or you've got excuses, uh, you're a target. But in some ways, it's justifiable. I think they went a little bit too far in the private side mm-hmm. and, and sort of attacked me uh, here and there for things that... Uh, I didn't think was was really the right thing to do, but but overall, I think that the the press was fine with me. I, I got a little bit of stick when I was Davis Cup captain, but you know when I was when I was winning matches, they were very uh, favourable. But as soon as you lose, they yeah. tend to go at you pretty hard. But you know it's part of the business, is the way I look at it. Did you feel like, and I know you mentioned Wimbledon, your regret not doing better there in front of the home fans? Do you feel because I think you've been pretty honest with your career, your assessment as yeah. a player. Do you feel like you got the most out of it? I know everyone has matches where things could have gone differently, but given your game, your style of play, the weapons you had or didn't have, do you mm. think you got the most out of your playing career? Absolutely not. And uh, <laughs> I talk about, as I just yeah. mentioned to you, about mm-hmm. not getting the, the, the full potential of me playing at Wimbledon or in Britain, mm-hmm. period. But my biggest regret is something that when I've coached, I've tried to 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 give that knowledge to young players coming up. Yeah. Don't Don't finish this sport without knowing that you've given 100%. And that's my biggest regret, that there was only really the latter, the real latter stage of my career when I hooked up with uh, the late uh, uh, great Bob Brett, Mm. who, who finally sort of 
basically said, listen, you know, you're at your end of your career. You either have to work 100% now or don't bother. And I was, I was debating about not even hiring him as my coach because I knew for the first time in my career I'd really have to work 110%. Yeah. And I did. Uh, but it was way too late in some ways. I mean, I still had a couple of good years, but I wasted 10, 12 years where I had decent ability. Uh, and I got to 21 in the world twice. Uh, and when I was young at 21, and I got to um, 21 after I got to three finals in the space of about nine months, uh, uh, with the, the Australian Open being the last one, my, my mentor at the time, John Barrett, who was a former British uh, Davis Cup player and helped me, has coached me, he said to me, you've got two choices here, John. You can either take the the attitude that okay I've just started now and you work doubly hard that you've done now yeah. or you coast and enjoy the fruits of your labor and of course unfortunately I took the uh, the latter and and sort of uh, mm. coasted to a certain extent and I had b- bouts of good play when right. my ability would get me into some good areas but it, but I didn't sustain it because I just didn't work as hard as I should have done so it is my my big regret it seemed like your career was interesting, too, because you came up at a young age, which for the time was what was happening. Mm. You had that kind of wall or moment that you referenced where you didn't work as hard, but you did have pretty good longevity, especially for the time being. I know now it's a different game with the training methods and stuff, but that's to at least give you you know, a sense of pride that you were able to compete and keep going. Well, I, yeah, I, I had a, a, a fairly long career, mm-hmm. as you said, and I started very young. I mean, basically, I was turned pro when I was 16 Mm. Uh, um, and so it was you know relatively long career but I think part of that to be honest was that uh, I hadn't damaged my body as much as a lot of the other players (laughs) because I hadn't worked as hard so I think that was part of the reason but but I also I also had so much of a life off the court which was probably a detriment in some ways but uh, because uh, you know you need to be 100% focused but I think I enjoyed myself a lot and so playing tennis was it really wasn't a chore particularly uh, at the end of my career so I I enjoyed playing and but but I knew when it was time to stop I I absolutely knew that I was done but I had the I had the luck to then go into uh, coaching team tennis and then five years later after I stopped I I played on the senior tour with uh, you know Jimmy Connors and and Borg and McEnroe so I never really gave it up totally I didn't have to sort of go cold turkey so to speak. John Lloyd here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, I, I think, you know, we're all fans of just learning more about the players behind, you know, the legends of the game behind the scenes. And, you know, your book, Dear John, uh, the John Lloyd Autobiography, what went into the process of, I guess, deciding to write the book at this point in your life as opposed to as opposed to maybe a little earlier or you know, even writing a book at all? Why did you decide this was the right time to do it? Well, I think there was a couple of reasons. Firstly, I, I did have a book earlier on when I was married mm-hmm. to Chris Everett, which was called Lloyd on Lloyd. Uh, please don't go out and buy it because it was <laughs> terrible. Uh, but it was actually a bestseller. But but uh, I was at a bad period uh, mm-hmm. then in my life. Um, my career was bad and I wasn't happy. And, you know, I, I said some things that weren't even me, really. And it was a it was an awful book, in my opinion, and uh, and I always regretted that. So, I, so that was okay. one reason I wanted to sort of almost not put the record straight, but just sort of show people who I really am, rather than a sort of a ma- manufactured person that I was in that first book, which was uh, not, who, as I say, not who I was. And I think the other reason was, you know, I've done quite a bit of uh, after dinner speaking uh, over the years, and it's something that I enjoy. With my career, 
Um, I always think, and I, I say this in the book, that the word great is, is the most overused word in, in, in tennis. You hear it with commentators. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he's a great player. She's a great player. No, then they're not great players. They're good players. The great right. players are, are multiple Grand Slam winners, yeah. uh, in my opinion. And so I was a good player. So when I, I, I wrote this book, I knew that I couldn't write about all my tennis victories. I mean, I, I had a, quite a few of them, but... I'm not John McEnroe or, or Jimmy Connors where I could talk about, I was in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon and then at 5 or in the 5th I did a diving volley and I ended up winning the slam and people would be interested in that. I, I knew that I had a good career but not a great one in terms of, in terms of the actual win. So I had to come up with something different and I've been very fortunate. I was in uh, four decades. I, I met and played against almost all the greats in, in that period. And I've come a lot of, across a lot of, I think, funny people, amusing people. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I think I've, I've got quite a few amusing stories. So I wanted to make it a book that a person could pick up and read that not, wasn't necessarily a big tennis lover that could still yeah. have kind of fun and read it and say, ah, you know what, I, that's, that's not a bad, that's a funny story. And, and bring out characters of people rather than just yeah. talking about their, their victories on the tour. Yeah, and, and you've gone on record saying, like, this is going to be a full story. It's going to be honest and open. It's going to yeah. talk about some hard stuff and some difficult topics that mm. might not paint yourself, other people, in the best of light at times, mm. but you're going to tell the full story. How important was that to you to just make sure that this was the complete version, even if it's not the one that's going to make me look the best necessarily? Well, I, I, I just wanted to be, you know, honest. Otherwise, I thought, why, 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 why bother to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a... A few chapters. I mean, there's chapters that are, are just sort of fun chapters and very, very easy to sort of write with yeah. my with my co-writer Phil Jones. They just sort of flowed off. And there were some uh, then there were some difficult ones. I mean, the, the chapter about you know having prostate cancer yeah. uh, six years ago was was difficult. But I wanted to write it and try and make it not amusing, but but sort of lighthearted in some areas of it, rather than it being oh yeah, it's prostate cancer and the big C and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So I try to make it. So that people who hopefully have got prostate cancer, that they realise that you know there's certainly right. hope because I've been very fortunate with it. And then there were chapters about my family and particularly about my son who had an a, a addiction problem. And when I was about to write the book and I told my kids, uh, my son said to me, "Are you going to write about you know my problems?" And I said, "No, I'm not going to do that. That's your business." And he said, "No, I want you to." I, I want you to because it might help someone in my wow. in, in in my position realize that you can come through it as he has done remarkably well mm. and he's uh, I'm very proud of him and he's been so successful and and uh, he's doing very well both my kids are doing very well and in a few more years I'll have enough money to put me in a retirement home <laughs> hopefully that, not too fast that's right? my goal yeah, well they think I sh- they think oh. I should go now oh, but I've said can you time. wait can yeah. you wait just a few years I think I think the approach of just straightforward and having some lighthearted moments in tough areas is good it's definitely intriguing to readers and the silver linings like you mentioned prostate cancer you moved to florida that Mm. probably after the divorce that was probably what could have saved you the detection there no doubt about it because i i i didn't have any symptoms and and i'm not a person that goes to the doctor very often i I do i go now Mm -hmm. because of the yeah because i i realize that, that you know there's trouble if you don't but in those days and i was Nearly, other than having a couple of knee replacements and yeah. a hip replacement, which was just obviously my job, uh, I've never really been ill. I've never been to a hospital really, mm-hmm. and so the, the 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 idea of going for yearly checkups, which someone after yeah. at my age should have been doing since the age of fifty, I just didn't do. Oh. And the only reason I went for a checkup 
was because I was getting divorced, moved to Florida. I had a couple of weeks off and I thought I better get a new doctor and a dentist and a yeah. dermatologist, blah, blah, blah. And I had a couple of weeks, so I, I made some appointments and just happened to see him. And two days later, it's funny how you remember these things. I was, I was at a, uh, an appearance, not an appearance, at a, um, it was an event with Tony Blair, the ex-British yeah. Prime Minister, was literally just about to make his speech. And I've met him before. I really wanted to listen, and I suddenly got a text message. It was 8 o'clock at night from this new doctor saying, uh, you need to call me. And I was thinking, well, Oof. that's a bit weird. Well, he's yeah. a very conscientious doctor. You know, I only went and saw him two days ago. So I called him. Uh, I went outside the place and called, called him, and he said, um, your PSA level has jumped up dramatically. You have to see a urologist like tomorrow. Mm. Don't wait tomorrow. And that's, that's, that started it. But as I say, if I hadn't have been... And if I hadn't moved to Florida, I probably wouldn't have gone <laughs> to the doctor for another wow. year or so, and it, and it could have been too late. So I got wow. very lucky. Wow. It's, it's amazing how timing is and that yeah. stuff that puts, puts it into perspective. Uh, in, in this book, in Dear John, what can we expect to learn about you know, the, the battles and some of the characters on the tennis tour that you were privileged enough to play against? Well, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, people always, one of the things that people always ask me whenever I'm at cocktail parties, whatever, they always ask, well, who was, you know, who was, what was it like playing Connors, Borg, and McEnroe? They were my three megastars that yeah. were in my era. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, how did you do against them? And what were they like? So I had to do a chapter yeah. on those three. And you got Bjorn to write the foreword to the book. I, I got Bjorn to write the foreword. And Bjorn is, uh, he's just a gem of a person. I mean, he's the most generous guy uh, that, you know, I mean, if you, if we, we saw him today and there were 20 people and he didn't even know them and we went out for dinner, he'd pick up the tab. He's just wow. that sort of guy, uh, very generous with his time. And, and I wrote a few stories about him because he was just, uh, he was a funny guy. One of the stories actually, which I always thought was amusing was in, in Pacific Palisades where I used to live here in, in Los yeah. Angeles and, and um, you know, I was married at the time and, and my wife Deborah and, and he came to stay at, at my house with his girlfriend at the time. And uh, I said to Bjorn one day, Deborah and I are just going to go to the park, Palisades Park, to hit some tennis balls, so I'll see you later. And he said, oh, okay. And so we're playing at the park, and all of a sudden, about 20 minutes later, I see him walking down the hill with his girlfriend, and they've got tennis rackets, and <laughs> he comes on the court and says, you know, can we play? And I said, sure. And so I'm watching people yeah. sort of walking down the hill, and they take a sort of look, and they look, and they kind of take a double take, and they're going, yeah. I can see them saying, is that... No, and then they walk off, and wow. they can't do it. And then uh, we started to play a set, and we it was like two one, and my ex wife was about to serve, and I'm at the net, Bjorn's about to receive, and I'm waiting for the serve. I'm waiting for the serve, and I'm thinking, what the heck? And then Bjorn starts laughing. I think, what the heck's going? So I turn round, and I look at my wife, and she she can't release the ball out of her hand to serve. And I said, what the hell's wrong? And she goes, I just realised I'm serving to Bjorn Borg, <laughs> and, and she couldn't serve. That's so great. it was just that was a that was a sort of a Bjorn boy. He was a yeah. he was this charismatic figure that right. you know started, in my opinion, one of the great tennis booms. Really, mm -hmm. he was. And when you look back at it, when you think about it, he started that teeny bopper yeah. at, at Wimbledon. And when you think about it, in those days there were no no cell phones, right. no computers, no iPads, and yet somehow this word spread about this sort of Swedish sort of tennis god that was playing one of the most famous athletes in the world of, of, all time. Yeah, of all time and all of a sudden it spread and then every day after that he played there were these screaming young girls yeah. and word wasn't getting out nowadays it would have been easy you could have mm -hmm. facebook and you yeah. would have but it was going out by the newspapers but word just spread about this guy and he i think he was 
one of the guys that was very responsible really for this tennis boom that happened. I was very lucky mm -hmm. to be in that period. And in fact, actually at Wimbledon next year, uh, the, the BBC are coming out with a documentary. It's called um, oh, wow. Wimbledon... Uh, the tennis gods or something like that the gods of the gods of women the gods of tennis yeah. uh, and they asked me to be in it uh, and i did a uh, couple of hours with them not that i was a, you know a, 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 in that year that anywhere near as good as those guys but i was a part of that yeah. and they obviously wanted some stories that were in that era right. so i was very lucky to be in you know i i see the era now obviously with nadal uh, federer yeah. and and, and uh, Djokovic and and you go oh what an era but my era was pretty special too. Yeah, Bjorn being the, like, you hear other tennis players and people from your era that people just would stare at him. Like, he was, like, looking at royalty. Yes. Like he had that sort of effect on yes. people. He was famous. Like, yes. not just sports famous, like, real famous. Well, he was a crossover star. Yeah. And he was, and, and obviously, uh, Jimmy Connors became a crossover star. And then, a few years later, Johnny Mack became a crossover star. And that's what, that's what makes the sport yeah. cook. That's what we really need. And when you get it in tennis, and we've been fortunate to have yeah. three huge crossover stars in the men and the women have been fortunate to have had a few with certainly mm -hmm. Serena and Venus yeah. and now we're looking for these Who's this next, next era yeah. I think we've got Carlos Alcaraz who's oh, going to be a yeah. crossover star and I think in the women actually there's going to be we've got a number of them that I think could be I think Emma Raducanu will be when she yeah. settles down I think Isla Fernandez will be I think Coco Goff mm. I think there'll be crossover stars and when you do that the tennis boom the ratings everything just goes ahead with it you said something interesting too, like your era being so great and how, how fortunate you were and privileged to be a part of it. I think that's a perspective that's a great one. I think a lot of tennis players have or should have that, that mm. you know, if you're not a top three or top five, top ten guy, that doesn't mean you're, you know, it was a failure or anything. You no. got to play in and with an era that was just remarkable and that oh. you, know, you shared the court with people that – you know, we were reading about and, you know, dreaming about seeing one day and you actually lived that life. Oh, yeah. every time I played those guys, I mean, I, I didn't enjoy a lot of the beatings, <laughs> but I, but, but I, I actually yeah. quite liked playing them because I knew that I was playing against someone special and I was not going to be in that era. And I was lucky in the era before that, I got to play in the tail end of, of Rod Laver, played uh, against him in singles, played doubles in Pancho Gonzalez. Uh, uh, Ken Rosewell, yeah. I mean, uh, Roy Emerson. So, I mean, for me, how lucky was that? How uh, intimidating was Pancho Gonzalez? Because well, I, read, I read the stories, but... Well, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. Yeah. I, I played him and lost to him, and I, I think he, at the, at the time, was about 47, and I was like 21 or 22. I lost him in South Orange on grass in three sets, wow. and he ended up getting the final that week. And if people say, well, how could you lose to him? Well, there's a lot of other people <laughs> lost to him. Yeah, yeah. And in my opinion, he was one of the greats. And actually, I got to know him well after mm. all of that stuff, and we used to do quite a few corporate outings together. And I loved sitting down there and talking to him. And I was very fortunate to talk to people like that, Fred Perry mm -hmm. over in Britain. And yeah. I would just soak up these stories that they that they would tell me yeah. uh, about players and, and who was the best and who would do this and who would do that. And I, I sort of, not that I was anywhere near those, but a lot of players today they'll chat to me and ask me about, about the players in my ear and what they were yeah. like, and I'm happy to tell them some fun stories. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. 
With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. More with John Lloyd here on Tennis Channel Inside In with the release of his book, Dear John, the John Lloyd Autobiography, coming out here in the States on October 25th. Uh, in the book, a lot of it is covered as the, the commentary career, too, is that yeah. you transitioned into that. And, you know, I guess the, the general question is, why did you decide to get into broadcasting? And when did you realize that this wasn't just a train passing in the night, that you could actually make a career out of it and work for the BBC, cover these Wimbledons and other big events? Well, I, you know, me getting into commentating was just pure luck. Uh, and that was at HBO, actually, mm-hmm. I started. And, and uh, the late, great Arthur Ashe had passed away, and he'd been the main uh, feature guy at HBO in the men's for years. And they were looking for a commentator. I, mm-hmm. I honestly didn't even think about it. And then... Uh, my ex-wife mentioned that she knew someone at, the, at, at HBO and you might, it might be good for you to, to have a, see if there's any shot at it. So yeah. I, I met Ross Greenberg, who was the mm-hmm. uh, head of uh, sport in those days, and we chatted about it. And I'd never done broadcasting, never even thought of it. And uh, he turned around and he, uh, it's just fate has some of these things. He said to me, look, I'll be honest with you, John, uh, you know, it sounds good, British and all that stuff, but we're really set on either getting Jimmy Connors or, or Vitas Gerolitis. And okay. I said, well, I totally understand that. <laughs> and I didn't even think of it. And then just by chance about, this was about three months before women, and I happened to be at an event with uh, with uh, Jimmy and Vitas. And we were just shooting the breeze, chatting about this yeah. and that. And uh, the guy, I said to them, and I, and, and I wasn't even thinking about the broadcasting. I said to the guys, are you going to come over to Wimbledon this year? Because I always, because that's where I lived. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I was going to be over there. Well, I lived in, in America, but I was going to be over there to visit my family. And they said, well, maybe. He said, we've actually, and then Vita said, yeah, I've had actually an offer from um, the, the HBO but um, I'm I'm going to stick with. Um, I think he had plans to go with CBS, or and he yeah, said I'm not going to yeah. do it. And then Jimmy said, Yeah, they actually asked me as well, but I'm not interested at the moment. And so I thought, Oh, so I didn't think anything. And and then Ross was very nice. He called me back and said, Look, John, you're still in our minds, but I'm just telling you that you know we are going to go with one of those two guys. And I'm thinking, No, you're not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't say it to him. I said, info. Oh, okay. Well, you know that's great. And mm-hmm. I thought. Holy cows. And then all of a sudden he called me about six weeks before Wimbledon and said, oh. we want you to do a screen test. I said, what the hell's that? Yeah. And he said, well, I want you to sit with a guy called Jim Lampley, who was yeah. the famous boy. And I, and I love boxing. I'm like, oh, does he know anything about tennis? And he said, yeah, he does HBO. And we're going to do a live screen test where we'll do the production. You'll, mm-hmm. We'll put a match on and off you go. So, of course, I thought I was sweating bullets. And I went in there and I had my earpiece, which I'd never had. And they're... they're they're saying this is a match, and they're and him and he goes rambling off, Jim Lampley, and then the guy in my earpiece while I'm talking says, John, at the next changeover, we're going over to court 13. So I said, okay. He says, no, 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 don't say okay. I said, right. He says, no, 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 don't say right. That's just gone out to a million people. I went, oh, okay. No, he says, don't okay, just put your hand up. And I went, oh, and then I finally got it, but not really. And I went in there, and I was – I was horrific. Uh, the first week I was like, you know, I was scared, but I sort of got through it. Got through but it. what made it really special was uh, uh, Jeannie Ash. Uh, mm-hmm. It was emotional, but she came in. I didn't know she was coming the second week of Wimbledon, and I'm sitting in Arthur's chair in, in the HBO studio, and she walks in, opens the door, walks in, and she sees me and burst out crying and ran off. And I loved Arthur, and I loved mm-hmm. Jeannie. And 
anyway, she came and saw me later because I didn't know what to do. And I was, and she apologized and said, look, I, I just thought I'd see Arthur sitting there. Mm. And I just want you to know that, um, Arthur would have loved the fact that you got the job. Mm -hmm. and I was very honoured that she said that and, you know, you'll do great and so yeah. on and so on. So it was great training for me. It lasted about two or three years. I got a great contract with them. And then eventually tennis, I don't think it was me doing the commentator yeah, yeah. that made them uh, <laughs> fold tennis for the HBO, but they finally left. And then I went straight into to BBC, uh, which was a great training thing for me. The only problem was at HBO, it was cable. And at and HBO, you could say whatever you want. You yeah. could swear on air. You could say <laughs> they wanted you to. Whereas the BBC was very prim and proper. For sure. Don't say a word. You only say mm -hmm. about three words. Sometimes don't mm -hmm. say a word for three games. So I had to retrain myself. Yeah. Uh, but I'd be, I was, I've been there now for over 20 years and still going strong. Wow, it's crazy. It starts <laughs> It starts kind of on a whim. You, yeah. you get through some tough times and yeah. then you find your footing and it takes off. Um, yeah. i got to ask you, though, because a lot of the research is the food references. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, I, people say that. They yeah. all say that you – and I didn't even know I'd do it, but I guess I do. I think yeah, I always yeah. talk about overcooking the shot. and uh, Not enough mustard. Not enough mustard yeah. and a few bits and pieces. Yeah. But I didn't know I was that stereotype. So now I try and go the opposite and cut it out. Okay. Now well, I'm trying to cut that out. I don't think it's disliked. It's I think not it's disliked. become okay. kind of a thing. Okay, too. yeah. Um, yeah. What, what advice would you give to the tennis players that are looking to make that transition, pros that are at the end – retired recently that would get into commentary to maybe not be I guess timid find your voice without yeah. also not going I guess too extreme and too hard at you know the takes and whatnot well it would say again it depends on the audience I mean if you were mm -hmm. training to be in in Britain you would go about it a different way than if you're in America the American TV you know to be honest the commentators talk a lot in the BBC, if you talk when the when the rally is on, you'll, you'll lose your job. Yeah. I mean, the, the the fans write in; they go bonkers if you do that. Mm -hmm. So you're taught to be not disciplined, but you you just you have to get out before the point starts. Right. In America, they talk through it all the time. I, I would say if you were going to be an American commentator, obviously you've got to have knowledge, but I also think you've got to have a. I think you've got to have a bit of a sense of humour in it. I mean, it's a it, it's a sport, and obviously there are serious times, but it's just it's it's a game <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, you know the guy in in britain a guy called dan maskell and john barrett they were pros there uh and 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 dick enberg who who i i i got to know quite well mm. I, I didn't well, I only work with him a couple of times but they basically said the same thing they they said basically i think commentating is about that you want to feel like you're sitting in the, on a le in, in the in in the lounge and you're on a on a seat with your friends yeah. and you're just shooting the breeze I mean, obviously, you've got to be disciplined about when you do it. Right. But it, it's conversational. You just want to have a chat. Yeah. I, I think sometimes some of the guys are too serious. Mm -hmm. It's too analytical. That's you, sports you, in general, I feel I like. I think yeah. so. It's too too many stats. Because it is. It is just a game. Like, it, at the it, end of the it day, it's supposed game. to be fun. It, and, yeah, yeah, it is a game. And, and, and I know there's a market for stats, and some people love all that. I mean, I was watching baseball the other day. Well, I almost, I fell asleep a few times, but, <laughs> but as I always yeah. do if I ever watch baseball. But... The stats that they're giving out, yeah. it's like, you know, and tennis, they're starting to do that a bit. And I think there's a sm some percentage, but I think there's a lot of people that just want to watch a game yeah. and have and just say, and, what are the players yeah. feeling out on and the I court? And I do think that the best broadcasters in all sports, the best color commentators are the ones that are experts that have played at a high level, know the game in and out, but can communicate it at a level that most people can understand. Right. That, I, that didn't play, that love the game, that maybe play casually, but don't 
want to don't understand and don't want to hear just the really analytical data driven stuff. No, well that's what I think, and I and I think the other thing too. I I also think sometimes players to talk too much about what they did or what they would do, and I and and mm. I think. I think you've got to be a little bit. I understand it if you're a top top player and people want to know, but I think it get it's a little bit tiring when it's always well. I would have. I would. It's yeah. all. I think it's better just gotcha. to say you know. Yeah. I, I think people want to hear in these react in these stress situations. What should the person be mm. thinking? What are they thinking? Rather than well, I would have done. I would have done this or that. I try and right. not that I was a great player, but I try and stick away from that as much as I possibly can. So in addition to commentary, I know you've coached a lot. There's yeah. been a lot of team, like the Davis Cup for Great Britain, World Team Tennis, also work with some players. How did you enjoy, you know, the coaching side of things? Is that something that, you know, you found that you enjoyed as much as some of the other hobbies and activities you got into, or was that just something to kind of stay connected in the game? Well, I, I, I do like coaching. I'm not, I, I've never, never been one that went out on the tour for that, that, that many times. I actually had a few decent offers, but after a while it was just, you know, it, was a, it became a grind. I think you're, you're with a, a much younger player, and, and these days they've got these entourages around them, and, you know, they want you to not to hang out with other coaches and all this kind of nonsense, yeah. and it's all a bit, my day, that, that stuff didn't happen. Now it's a, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not really for me now. I, like, I liked more, you know, with, with World Team Tennis particularly. Davis Cup being, I was the coach when my brother was captain, and then I moved into the captaincy. Mm. It was a great honour. But did I enjoy it? Well, I enjoyed when we won the matches, but when we lost them, I didn't enjoy it. But but um, yeah. I found that difficult to a certain extent because, you know, when you're a Davis Cup captain, you know, again, there's some people that play, ex-people that players that do it, they've got strong egos. And it, it, yeah. and it becomes difficult because you've got to remember that the players that you're on the court with, right. they've got regular coaches for 40 weeks a year. So... What are you going to do? Tell them that they're not hitting their forehand right or their back. You're not going to do that. It's yeah. more of a mental thing. Mm -hmm. And it can be difficult when you've got to deal with players that were better than you uh, and have strong egos. I'll give you an example that I write about in the book with Andy Murray. Now, Andy Murray, uh, who I've known for years, as we all know, Andy uh, can tend to get a little bit upset at his coaches, to so put it mildly. That's fair to say. Uh, fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself when I got the job and when he was coming up, and I was thinking, oh, no, I'm going to be sitting there for four hours and I'm going to have this young kid, <laughs> you know, insulting me, and I can't go anywhere. If I was a, a normal coach and, yeah. he, and he said, I'd walk off, I'd say, bye-bye. Yeah. I can't, it's Davis Cup captain, there's millions of people. <laughs> so I'm thinking, how am I going to get out of this? So I actually... I don't do that many smart things in my life, but this one was a smart thing. I, at the time, he was being coached by Brad Gilbert, who's, yeah. uh, you know, certainly knows how to chat and he's, he's never lost for words, that's for sure. Yeah. So I, I went up to Brad and I said, look, you know, I'm going to be doing Andy's matches and, uh, you know, I don't want to suddenly jump in and say something and, you know, because he's obviously a better player than me and you're his coach. He said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll supply you with the notes and, and all that stuff. Perfect great yeah so you know andy's playing yeah. and it gets in a stressful situation he's starting to get and i see him getting Andy. he's looking over at me and he's about to say you know you're useless get off the court or something <laughs> and i'm thinking oh my god what do i do so i turn around to brad and brad writes something and it comes it to me and so it gives it to me and then andy walks up the changeover and i said andy you know you're not coming in the net enough and i can see he's about to blast me and i go he said that 
<laughs> and I turned around and pointed at Brad. And so then he abused Brad. So I got out of that oh, one beautifully. That's great. So that's, that was, so that that was plain telephone on there. Hey, it works out. you got to do that. Make it on your stuff. feet. That's good. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the current setup of the Davis Cup? Just a quick follow-up. Uh, Are you, I mean, I've lost all interest, yeah, to tell you the truth. And, and, and unfortunately, I, I don't like to say I told you so kind of thing, but I did. I, I, I said this 15 years ago. Um, for me, the home ties were what made the Davis Cup so. Sp- in my well, opinion, as a well, fan, they just, did. They you know. they certainly did. But to me, fifteen years ago, maybe even more than that, actually, Davis Cup started losing its magic when when players the era came up where Davis Cup was not their number one priority mm-hmm. after the Slams. Yeah. Once that happened, you're in trouble. Uh, I mean. For a different sport, but and I don't know some. I know a lot of the audience now like soccer, but I'm yeah. a big soccer fan. But in England, uh, we we have this thing called the FA Cup, which is yeah. a cup competition. In my day, it was the biggest thing when the finals was played at Wembley in front of a hundred thousand people. Everybody stopped for the day. You know, you just everybody watched that game. And then a famous soccer manager called uh, Alex Ferguson, who was the manager of the top team at the time, yeah. Manchester United, he decided that the FA Cup wasn't really as big as it was uh, in the old you know it wasn't didn't mean as much to the club so that season he put out all of his reserves in the team wow and they lost it and once that happened then the other teams the other rivalries thought well he's given his team a rest Mm. before the other the other matches so we'll do the same and once that happened the, the fa cup started to slide down and what happens with the davis cup it's the same thing. When you're getting three or four out of the top ten, which was happening, playing, mm-hmm. you can't, the public are not stupid. You yeah. can't say it's the number one competition when only a third right. of the top ten are playing. And it was good to see the top guys go, like the year Murray committed, Great Britain won the Davis Cup 2015, Federer oh. had it for Swede, or Switzerland, but... Yeah, then it was just became like a, I just got to check this box off and then probably never going to play again or take it serious. Exactly. I mean, the, the last one to me who had the, the, the priorities of Davis Cup the right way was Leighton Hewitt. Yeah, Leighton, Hewitt, Leighton yeah. Hewitt always said, as soon as the schedule came out for the year, he would look at the slams and where the Davis Cup match. He didn't care if it was away in, you know, <laughs> in Afghanistan. He yeah. wouldn't care yeah. whether he was in Group 2 because the team went down mm-hmm. one time. He was going to play for his country. I don't think a lot of the players had that attitude after him. And I'm, I'm afraid. And I, and I think now, with the way the competition is, and, you know, it, there were some good matches, don't get me wrong. But now I think it's become more of a financial thing. Yeah. The money is huge. I don't really believe deep down that these players, and I'm not, I'm generalizing, some yeah, of them do, yeah. but, but the vast majority don't think, oh my God, I've got to play that. I'm representing my country. I think times have changed. And so for me, the Davis Cup now is just not what it was. It's unfortunate that that event has such oh, tradition and exactly. means so much and it's given us some great matches. Uh, John Lloyd, this has been a fun chat. The last thing I want to go over with is kind of the state of where we are with Great Britain in tennis, British tennis mm. right now. Interesting time. I think you can kind of look at Murray, who you mentioned, who held the mantle for so long and is yeah. going to go down, you know, historically. I just think it's amazing that he's still out there competing, you know. Amazing. Could have walked off in the sunset, world number one, year end, three grand slams, two-time Wimbledon champ, but yeah. just loves it. And loves kind of being agitated on court, too. He, he still loves that. Yeah, he's never yeah. going to change. Well, it, it shows once again, you cannot ever tell, and I think in any sport, any athlete, but tennis is one obviously I'm involved with when it's time to stop I mean as a, as a punter as an outside person looking in you know do I like to see a great player lose starting to lose players that five years ago ten years ago would have beaten them you know left-handed no mm-hmm. 
But the bottom line is, it's in your blood when you first start playing. And if and if you haven't got that out, and you still want to go there, and even and Andy Murray to this day is obviously not playing the way he did. But there are moments where he'll hit a running forehand down the line. And in his own mind, he is getting the buzz of thinking, yeah. that was one, yeah, that was me. That was when I was at my best. And when you get those highs, it's very difficult to replace that. And when you retire and that's done, you have families and obviously that's a separate thing and that's wonderful. But the actual buzz of getting up in the morning and training for a goal and then hitting those magical shots, there may not be as many as there were, but just a few of them, you can't, you can't, you can't copy that. And, and for me, as long as Andy wants to play, I don't care if he goes, gets ranked 800. It's his choice, and I love watching some points of it. And we're lucky in Britain that we've got Emma Raducanu. I know she's dropped off a bit at the moment, but she's a Grand Slam winner. I thought your perspective on Emma was great. That you know, it was it was insane. It was like you yeah, said, Rocky-esque, Rocky. and you know, yeah, that it's going to take time for her to be the traveling yeah. well well old pro. Yeah, that it's probably not fair to put these expectations on her a year or two out because nobody does what she did. No. Go through qualifying and a major without dropping. A no, it's insanity. And you know, we've had all these tennis movies in the last few years. The last one with the the Richard Williams story was a, was obviously a good movie, and the Billie Jean King one was good. But before that, we had terrible tennis movies, Wimbledon, and mm. and the one that I was unfortunately in players was awful. Although I got the quarterfinals in that one, so I was quite happy because it was the best I ever did. Uh, even though I lost in the in the movie, who cares? No one. I tell people I lost Royalty in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. Through, yeah. Royalties are not yeah. that big. Okay. No, I don't think I've ever got a penny for that, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, every time they wrote these scripts, and I got a couple of the scripts for Wimbledon, and, and it had this rocky story of this guy coming through the qualifying and winning it. And I said, stop writing that rubbish. It won't happen. And then she goes and does it. Yeah. And it made me look a complete fool. But she will come back. I do believe that. I think she's just settling down. Um, and Britain, we're lucky. We, we've got another Grand Slam winner. And we've got... Some very good other players in there. Cam Nori, who uh, I never expect him That's, to be this good. Yeah. What it's a way a, to maximize his what potential. A, what an absolute, exactly right. And Dan Evans, who had that problems for two years with his drug problems, mm-hmm. could have taken the, the way and just given up. He and came back and now he's now he's finally, the last four yeah. years, worked worked with the way he should have done it earlier on. I was going to ask you about Jack Draper. Jack Do you Draper think he, is a superb like, player. What's the ceiling on is he? A, is he a guy? I, is he I, a top 10, top I think, 5 guy? I think Jack Draper could win a slam. Mm. I'm not going to go and say multiple. I, someone asked me about Carlos Al- Alcaraz, and oh, I, said, yeah. I said 10 plus, uh, uh, which is, you know, I think very doable for him. Jack Draper, I'm not going to go that far, but I do think he has the capability of winning a slam. I, I think he's there's something special about him. He's got he's a shot maker, and uh, I like the way that he went out in the challenges uh, uh, this year before he's got mm-hmm. ranked high enough, and he won a lot of big tournaments, a yeah. lot of tournaments, and they're tough to beat on clay, mm-hmm. which was not that's not really his surface, yeah. but it's turning out he's not bad on it, and I I think he, I think he could win a slam. I think he certainly could be top 10. I, I like his game. He's an athlete. I think yes. he's got something special. And it's hard to forecast, especially because we were yes. just so used to the same three guys. Of winning. course. <laughs> but there's going to be opportunities now that weren't maybe around in that, exactly the previous right. generation. Well, I think if you look at the top 10 now, if you take out Novak which you can't, and Rafa, mm-hmm. which let's just say, mm-hmm. say two years down the road you can take him out. Who knows yeah. how long they're going to play? <laughs> and you've got Alcarez and you've got Sinner. And you've got, but, but the top 10 is not... 
you don't look vulnerabilities. Yeah, you don't look at it and go, "Oh my heavens, how are you going to beat them?" Mm -hmm. I I think, as you say, I think there are definitely opportunities for someone to really break through and and go at those top guys and and possibly win a slam. Chance to be that next crossover star. Exactly. Um, Well, John Lloyd, thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In, dear John. The John Lloyd autobiography coming out October twenty fifth. I guess just one final note on why people should buy this book. In your opinion, what's the the number one thing they're going to get out of this story? Well, I, I think they're going to they they they're, they're going to have some fun stories. I I hope. Mm-hmm. I think it's a book that we try to write that even if you're not a tennis fanatic, uh, you could open up a chapter and find something that you could enjoy. I think there's some you know there's some sort of uh, serious chapters, but but hopefully that even those I kind of made amusing at times. Uh, and I I think I I've. You know, as I say, I've been around. I've I almost before we 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 decided on Dear John, um, uh, I was I wanted to call it Lucky Lloyd, uh, because I believe I've been tremendously lucky in my life, and I had this life, and to go around the tour, and hopefully people can read it and say, boy, he was lucky, and he he got to see some nice, some interesting places, and met some amazing people, and had, has had a good life, and it's a fun one to read about. I hope. Yeah, and still going strong as well. Uh, John Lloyd, thanks so much for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. My pleasure. Loved it. Big thanks to Ed McGrogan and David Kane, as well as John Lloyd. Make sure you pick up Dear John, the John Lloyd autobiography on October 25th here in the United States. It's a pleasure talking to him as well as Ed and David. And thanks for everybody out there who listened to this show, Tennis Channel Inside In, which can be found on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast. You'll find Inside In. You'll find the tennis.com podcast and all the other shows on our network. We're streaming on all your podcast platforms. It's not that hard to find. Tell your friends that this is the podcast place you need to be as a tennis fan. I'm Mitch Michaels. Thanks for all my guests for appearing on the show. And thank you to everybody who listened. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.